So let's talk about strategy. Welcome to the Thought Bistro podcast by Vishrut and Akhil. On this podcast, we discuss the weekly news, review books, and look at the world from a different lens. Our mission is to provide a platform to explore different ideas and perspectives from around the world and to allow our listeners to develop a deeper understanding of the world we live in. So I was looking for the best books of 2022 in business. And I came across this book called The Crux, How Leaders Become Strategists. And I found it very interesting, you know, by the name The Crux. Even though we use the language, what's the crux of the situation? And I went on to ask my father, what does he think the crux means? And he was like, the crux means the most important part of a situation or the crux means the conclusion of a situation. And even I was unaware of what the term really means. So then came the introduction of the book and apparently it has something to do with rock climbers. So the introduction that Rumult goes on to give is that when rock climbers go bouldering, bouldering is essentially where they're climbing rocks without any harness or anything like that. Because these are shorter rocks, they when you fall off, there is usually foam padding and stuff given. So you don't really injure yourself. But the challenge is that you don't have a harness. So if you lose grip, if you are unable to go further, or if you fall, you just, you fall to the ground. So he says, here, rock climbers, when they do bouldering, the most important challenge that they face, the place where they get stuck, is referred to as the crux. And they strategize on how to get past this crux and say, once we get past this, we will look at the later part of the boulder after. They don't even think about that. They only think about crossing this crux. So they use a very interesting term, or let's say they use a very interesting sentence for it. They call it the roof of the dog's ass, which means if you're looking at a dog, you cannot see beyond its ass. So you have to get through the ass first and then you'll get to the ears, which I found really fascinating. So how does it relate to strategy? How it relates to strategy is that most of the time, strategy as described by the current scenario is how to get to a hundred. And before getting to a hundred, we say, let's get to a 10, then let's get to a 20, and then let's get to a 30, and then we'll get to a hundred. But here he says that let's aim to get to the one and let's see what stops us from getting to the one. And let's put all our focus on that thing stopping us and see how to address that particular challenge. Think about it this way. You play video games, right? There are missions on video games and there are certain things within certain missions where you get stuck. Now you play that once, you play that twice and you keep getting stuck at the same place. That same thing kills you time and time again. You know, no matter how well you play the rest of the video game or how well you strategize for the rest of the video game, unless you can get through that particular mission, there's no way of completing the game. So that is essentially what Rumult is trying to say. That don't strategize for how to complete the entire video game. Strategize for how to get through that particular situation. Put all your brain power into that. So he says here, the first part is judgment about which issues are truly important and which are secondary. The second part is judgment about the difficulties of dealing with these issues. 
And the third part is the ability to focus, to avoid spreading resources too thinly, not trying to do everything at once. The combination of these three parts lead to a focus on the crux, the most important part of a set of challenges that is addressable, having a good chance of being solved by coherent action. So he gives the example here of SpaceX and Elon Musk. And he says Elon Musk's first challenge or first crux that he ended up focusing on was reducing the cost of space travel. Now he realized the main reason for this increased cost was we don't reuse rocket parts. He thought one way to do this was increasing the fuel capacity in these rocket parts which are discarded from rockets and just sent crashing back to Earth and have them slowly decelerate and come back. So he put his entire efforts in the beginning few years of SpaceX not on figuring out how to get from Earth to Mars, but on figuring out how he can get rocket parts to come back and land on Earth in a safe manner where then they can be reused. And that is what he achieved. SpaceX's first commercial flight was in 2009, where they put a Malaysian observation satellite into orbit. But the revolution began in 2015 with the Falcon 9, the first ever rocket to gain orbit, turn around, fire its engines for a slow re-entry and a soft landing on its tail. By 2018, Falcon 9's cost per pound into low Earth orbit was 23 times cheaper than, old, than the old space shuttle. Its bigger brother, the Falcon Heavy, cut Falcon 9's cost per pound in half. So you can imagine how far Elon Musk has gone from 2001 when he first got this idea to 2018, where he was just focusing not on how to get from Earth to Mars, which was his ultimate goal, but on how to reuse space shuttles. I think I have a more personal example here. So for us to be able to monetize our content, we need to get to 1,000 subscribers and we need to get to 4,000 hours of viewing by you guys. And the crux of how to get there is from our side to produce better content and keep you all engaged. And from your side to tell your friends, to tell your families and to spread our content like wildfire and get us to that 1,000 subscriber point very quickly. And, you know, suggest to us how do we tackle this crux and how do we keep you all more engaged? You know, get in the comments and let us know. Yeah, and I guess from our side, we're just going to keep producing, keep reading, keep learning, keep sharing as much as we can, as quick as we can. I think just digressing on that subscriber point, we currently only have about 23 subscribers where I think about 80, 90 of you are watching each episode religiously. So please hit that subscribe button and give us that love, show us that love. So getting back to the topic, the concept of a crux narrows attention to a critical issue a strategy is a mix of policy and action designed to overcome a significant challenge. And the art of strategy is in defining a crux that can be mastered and in seeing or designing a way through it. So what do you have to say about that? The thing that comes into my head is, remember in school when you were writing an essay, the biggest, most important thing of your essay used to be your thesis statement. Now your thesis statement was, as one can say now, the crux of your essay. Your entire essay revolved around your thesis statement. So once you'd figured that part out, the rest of the essay came very naturally because there was one part defending the thesis statement, one part against it, so on and so forth. So that's essentially what he's saying with strategy. You have to first find that crux, that thesis statement. 
So rumor very clearly defines what the art of strategy is not and what it is. So he says the art of strategy is not decision making. That assumes that you have been handed a list of possible actions from amongst which to choose. He says the art of strategy is not finding your one true goal and passionately pursuing it. That is in fact a mental disease called monomania. The art of strategy is not setting higher and higher performance goals for people and using incentives to push them towards getting these goals. That assumes one of these people know how to find a way through these thicket of problems and in fact they don't. So it's just going to put more and more pressure. And on the other hand he gives you some of the very basics of being a strategist. He says to be a strategist you will need to embrace the full complex and confusing force of the challenges and opportunities you face. You will need to develop a sense for the crux of the problem. You will need persistence because it is so tempting to grab at the first glimmer of a pathway through the thicket of issues. You will have to take responsibilities for external challenges but also for the health of the organization. You will have to balance a host of issues with your ambitions. You will have to keep your actions and policies coherent with each other and make sure they do not nullify each other by having too many in incentives or conflicting purposes. So essentially if we are to break these down you can see that he talks about having balance or making sure that you don't clutter things up too much so it's it's very very simple stuff which he has outlined very clearly and i think for me having this in the introduction of the book really made it clear as to what rumor was trying to say and what his point was eventually it sits so well with the analogy of a football club and i know a lot of our viewers might not be football fans but here it goes so in a football club a very important position is called the manager and the manager has to design how the team will play and how the team will sign different players and how the team goes forward and a manager can come in and set a target for the season and be like we're going to win a championship we're going to win the league or we're going to win whatever cup we are in or whatever tournament we are in but it doesn't mean anything because everybody has the same target right everybody wants to win every cup they're in that's the whole point of the game so sometimes there is a revolution that happens in a club and you can clearly see how well the club is doing in a very short span of time with the new manager an ex an example would be manchester united this season where a manager comes in other than just you should have passion you should you know go out there and enjoy yourself comes in with specific targets and those targets are qualitative not just you go and score that many goals but rather you come in make sure you get this pass right and then make sure you get this pass right again and again and make sure you get this specific play right and soon sooner or later this play is built into your memory and into your muscle memory and suddenly it's like you know the thing just starts flowing and uh, the crux of the situation here is not oh i have to get through so many things or i have to win this or i have to win that it's just you have to win the next game the crux here is just winning football matches because without winning one particular game there is no way you can go on to win any tournament so your focus has to always be on that crux and only then can you move forward because unless you win your next game there is no way you can go on to win whatever tournament you're in so what is the addressability of the crux of winning the next game then you start breaking down 
that challenge into more addressable challenges. Okay, we are going to be playing a team like Barcelona, who is a huge name in Spain, and we have to figure out what style of play they have. Oh, this player, a player called Fred, can go on and mark this specific player in Barcelona around whom the whole play is based. Slowly and steadily, you start to break the, break down their complete set of policies. And slowly and steadily, you can get to the game. So that is, oh, we found the crux in the midfield. And we address that by setting a player on that. So I, I think it beautifully fits all together. Because football is a game of strategy and tactics. And this is all we hear. What are their tactics? What are their strategies? But it is the longer term goal addressed by a shorter term goal addressed by a shorter term crux and each game at a time has a different set of crux and strategies ever evolving on that front. Yeah, I think the basics of this is that strategy isn't something you set up on the first day of your organization and you're like, okay, this is what we have, this is what we're going to set in stone and this doesn't change. It's not that. It's something you talk about on the first day and then you do what you have to go the first day and then the second day you come back and you reevaluate that have you gotten through that crux that you defined on the first day if you've not gotten through that crux of the first day until you get through that first crux you focus your full effort on that you build a strategy not to get to the end end goal of your company but to get through that first crux once you get through that first crux you reevaluate you find your second crux and you go from there so strategy is constantly evolving. It's constantly going through changes. It's something that you're looking at, you're evaluating, judging, seeing if it works for everyone in your organization, seeing if it works for you, seeing if it's working for your colleagues and understanding that it has to focus not on the end goal of the company, but on your next crux. So he says a lot of companies are just focused on a very widespreading goal which doesn't mean anything. For example, a company that produces calculators might come up with a statement that our strategy is to produce the best calculators ever in the industry. It doesn't mean anything. And okay, you're supposed to create the best calculator ever. Next day, your employee wakes up. And when he wakes up, what does he think about? Does he think about, oh, I'm supposed to create the best calculator ever. I don't know what that means. I don't know how addressable that is. I don't know what direction I'm supposed to go in. So I'll just go in and work as usual. And sooner or later, you realize that the obscurity of that statement just got to your firm. Absolutely. I think on one hand, you should definitely not have these vague goals. But the moment you have one specific goal or like one long-term goal, which you think is what you want to achieve, you have to just keep it there. You can't keep... Elon Musk today can't keep telling his employees at SpaceX... Oh, we have to go to Mars. Oh, we have to go to Mars. Oh, we have to go to Mars. His first crux is not, oh, we have to find a way to go to Mars, but we want to find a way to reuse space shuttles. His entire focus has to be on that. Once that is achieved, then you see, okay, this is my larger goal. This is how this has helped me achieve that larger goal. What is the next step? So he says the process of diagnosing the challenge and creating a response is the best theory for strategy creation. You analyze the challenge and your resources and you think of ways to surmount that challenge and realize some of your ambition. There are a myriad of tools that exist to help you analyze the challenge. 
and there are ways of stimulating and helping you think of a response you know other situations that are similar different points of view doing it again or doing something that worked on previous similar challenges these are only stimuli they're not giving you strategy you don't pick a strategy from a menu you create it it's something that involves your active participation you have to be very involved you have to see what works for you so in one of these master chef us finals there was a finalist who was baking cake and during the process of baking that cake whatever comes out of the oven is sometimes left to the fate and when she got the cake out of the oven it turned out it was raw in the middle and she was almost in time for plating so what she did is she cut out the raw part and she served a hollow cake with like some of the ingredients plated in the middle and it looked like oh that was the aim from the very beginning so that is one way to face a challenge and to you know come up with a solution for the challenge although she didn't go on to win the master chef she came very close another thing that is being discussed in the book is that it is very important to write down all the challenges your firm faces so a firm does not only face one or two challenges it is generally faced by like a bucket load of challenges that need to be solved so the author suggests get a piece of paper write down all of those challenges and then write down the addressability and the criticality of those challenges and then find the first thing that your entire energy should go towards which is fairly critical and which is also fairly addressable because a challenge that is not addressable needs to be broken down into further smaller challenges which might be addressable to get to the addressability of that challenge think about this uh, like the organizational structure we discussed when we were talking about the e myth how we said over there the e myth says that you should create different roles that your organization needs and the responsibilities for those roles and then assign those roles to particular people similarly here it's saying you sit and create a list of challenges what are your next challenges what is challenge a b c d e f etc and which of those do you need to address first if you have to say address challenge d first you know okay this is my most critical challenge and how do i address it is it addressable if it's not addressable then you have to break challenge d down further you go to d1 d2 d3 and then you see okay which of these is the most critical and which of these is the most addressable and then you work back from there so it is like basics of eating an apple to eat the apple you need to take one one bite at a time otherwise you'll choke that's the same as an in industry the other way that rumel defines the crux is that he says that the crux of a challenge is a point of tension where a constraint or conflict between resources and issues or amongst polit or amongst policies seems to chafe so he says when amazon first opened its marketplace service it allowed outside firms to sell their products through the amazon website the conundrum was that some of these firms may gain scale scope and you know get big enough to challenge amazon even taking their supplies and products to their own websites in the future however denying this would have limited the scope of amazon itself at that time and it wouldn't have helped amazon grow to the place that it is so amazon instead of getting its own products to challenge these companies 
started focusing on its logistic system instead. It said if we create a logistic system that is so good that these companies are so dependent on us to get deliveries to people in times that they promise that they will never be able to leave us. So instead of working on its marketplace to improve the product, it had by replacing outside sellers by native or products that Amazon built itself, Amazon focused on creating the best logistics system in the world. So it offered sellers warehousing, shipping, you know, the offer was of a marriage most could not refuse. And its continued expansion into more and more and more products countered threats from all suppliers because here was a company who was on the way to develop the best logistics system in the world, getting all kinds of different goods and products onto its website. So there was nobody who could refuse that offer of getting such great logistics and such great management in order to get their products to customers in times and in conditions that they could not rival themselves. So moving on to the next discussion he had in the book, he discussed the mechanics of insight. And what he means by insight is something that you were able to see that others may have ignored. And that might become a coherent part of your strategy. This is where your expertise comes into play. So he states that a major impediment to insight is unconscious constraint, an unrecognized assumption or belief about the world or about the problem situation. And you know, when I was reading the book, an example from outside the book came to mind, which is a hilarious one. So there used to be this company called Blockbuster. And Blockbuster was a video rental store. And it was before the time of Netflix. And Netflix came into being and after Netflix came in, Blockbuster internally discussed that, you know, maybe we should also work on a subscription-based model because Netflix originally was, you subscribe to get a particular set of movies delivered to your home every month. So when this was being discussed at Blockbuster, a lot of people stood against it because a major chunk of Blockbuster's revenue was late returns. And they just said that late returns being so important are never going to go away and Netflix by itself is going to drown and we are going to be fine. And within three years, they were out of business. So it was their set of beliefs that the world is going to remain constant. So this takes us back to our episode where we did uh, that book called Who Moved My Cheese? Where we speak about change and this whole thing that, you know, the world is ever changing and we do have to keep up with change. We have to be ready for change. We have to be actively looking for change because things are changing on a daily basis. Things are changing on an hourly basis sometimes. So change is something that we have to incorporate into our daily lives. So the author talks about growth and the author says that most CEOs have this one sentence in common. Chapter number five starts with, our main challenge is growth. Our growth rate has been slowing and it has hurt our stock price, our image. We must increase our penetration of existing markets, relentlessly seek out new opportunity and create new growth options. So what is it? What is growth and how can a company target it? And the author is very clear that growth is not just your financial outset. It is not just your financial targets that you're supposed to hit on a quarterly basis move beyond the numbers, he says. And also, if you think about growth rate, the larger you grow 
or the larger you become as a company your growth rate will automatically start slowing down because your growth rate is based on the size of your company so if you're a very small company if you're say worth $100 and you grow to become worth $200 you've technically grown 100% however if there is a company worth a million dollars and they have grown to 1.1 million dollars they have grown what 10% however their growth is so much more than yours because they have captured $100,000 worth of markets whereas you have only captured $100 so if you think about it this term growth rate is also very deceptive you know economies during covid fell so drastically and after that when the recovery started happening instead of using the past number to calculate growth everybody started using the absolute bottom to overstate oh look how well we have grown over the past month even though that drop that significant drop was always going to be temporary people have used it as marketing material and having worked in investment banking i can tell you a lot of the numbers are just you know random numbers pulled out of the air like a total market size might be that of you know 100 million 200 million and the company will just state that my revenue is going to be 1 billion dollars in 20 years just because and there is like no rhyme or reason behind it i was recently approached by this company for investment and they currently have revenues of 400 crores indian rupees and they say that in the next 5 years they are going to reach 4000 crores 10x of that their reasoning is very very convenient they say oh our the market that we are entering has a sale of 1.25 lakh crore or something like that and currently we are only doing 400 crore in that market so we aim to get 5000 crores 10x of what we're currently doing without really doing too much in terms of you know increasing their product but just because the market is so big that we're eventually going to catch on and because we're part of this industry with such a massive volume of sale that we just want to get 1 or 2% of that because we're going to get 1 or 2% of that we're going to get 4000 crores i think shark tank looks to fill this gap very well where companies come in with absurd valuations and companies come in with you know absolutely random expectations from the world most of the time because maybe even the entrepreneurs are not very well versed with the finances of it all and they are well versed with their products like again we lead back to the emeth revisited uh, episode of ours where we discuss how small businesses work and generally small businesses are a result of the entrepreneur themselves being involved in the work rather than themselves being like a financial genius but the author does something very interesting he gives several ingredients to tear apart this growth number and see if this growth number makes sense and if you're from within the firm you can look at these ingredients to see whether you can support a growth within your own firm so ingredient number 1 is deliver exceptional value to an expanding market and i think the sentence is very explanatory of what it means unremarkable you might say yet delivering exceptional value to an expanding market is the basic formula for business success in a vast majority of cases the second ingredient he says is simplify to grow again very very self explanatory he says to grow a company it is very helpful to get it trimmed and focus on the business areas that will grow 
weed the garden of stale activities and business units. Very, very poignant example. I think everyone is familiar with this concept of weeding the garden. So he says, weed your company. Find out the things that are unnecessary, that take away unnecessary manpower, excess manpower, and they do not return the amount they should. Find your area of focus. I came across this very interesting video on YouTube about lean manufacturing. And any manufacturers listening to the podcast, you guys should definitely watch that video. I link it in the description. And, you know, that gives a good example of this manufacturer who takes out all the friction from their manufacturing process. And they've been doing very well from there. So that's something for all of you to check out. Ingredient number three is be quick. He says reaction time is critical in competitive situations. When a new opportunity or challenge arrives on the scene, first capable response often wins, not necessarily the first mover, but the first one to provide a competent reaction. Chat GPT comes to mind with this very, very quickly. As soon as Microsoft got its hands dirty on ChatGPT, invested $5 billion, immediately within a week, they launched Bing with a version of ChatGPT on it called Bing Chat. And some of the answers it has been giving is absolutely hilarious. So I feel like it's more a first mover than it is, you know, first to respond. Facebook wasn't the first mover. Facebook was far behind and, you know, there was MySpace, Friendster, Orkut, all these different, different social media platforms that were already out there. But Facebook was the first one that provided that whole thing in one. So Facebook was the first competent reaction out there. Ingredient number four says, use mergers and acquisitions to speed and complement a strategy. So this one is kind of iffy. And even he discusses how this one is kind of iffy. Being in finance, you read about so many mergers and so many acquisitions. And you realize that even on the median, more than half of these go wrong. Generally, you end up overpaying for a company. And because you overpay for that company, all the things that you think are going to happen in the fairy tale of your imagination don't end up happening. And you end up writing off a company on your balance sheets. A major example was the Kraft Heinz deal where Berkshire Hathaway was involved in Kraft buying Heinz. And after that, everything just, you know, collapsed. Most of it had to be written off and there was no money made. Everything was overvalued. At the end of the day, you're getting into a company that's not yours. So there is not much you can control. This is one of the parts that your control over the company that you're going to be merging with or acquiring is limited to the money that you put in and what you will have to do once that company has been merged with yours. You do not you do not know the nitty-gritties of what goes on. You know what's going on in your own company, but the moment you're getting an outside force in, there is that level of unpredictability, which is what makes this very iffy. Hence the ingredient number five. Ingredient number five, don't overpay. So when you do buy a company where you think synergy is going to be possible and what synergy means is when I buy this company, the value of my own company as well as of that company go up. So essentially 5 plus 5 equals 12 where the 2 is the synergy. And if you're going to form that synergy, don't overpay for that synergy by buying 5 plus 5 for 14 and then ending up with the 12, which actually is an 11 because, oh man, you know, I didn't think of it before. Number six. Don't grow the blob. What is the blob? The blob is the 
complex interconnected structure at the heart of so many older organizations. It is the red tape. It is the bureaucracy. It is fairly bureaucratic and has numerous policies and norms that have evolved over many years. The blob is the truck on a one-way road, a single-lane highway, which is trying to take a U-turn and just get stuck in the middle of the road. If your company becomes a truck and you need to completely change your strategy, then it is going to be very difficult to take a U-turn. So do not make your company into a truck and make it versatile enough to change the strategy. Exactly like we discussed on the Blockbuster example, where they should have been taking a subscription approach because it was already there in the market with Netflix and where they could have taken a streaming approach from there on out, but it would have to change everything about them. Another example that comes to mind and somebody who handled the blob very well was Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs did not care one bit about what anybody thought. Xerox came out with this thing called a graphical user interface. When Xerox came out with graphical user interface, Steve Jobs saw it and he said, we have to buy this portion of Xerox and we have to implement it. Right now, Complete Windows is based on the implementation of Apple of their GUI or graphical user interface. A lot of higher-ups at Apple told Steve Jobs, we have invested so much money to go in a different direction, to go in the direction of typing it. And Steve Jobs said, the future is computer in everybody's hand and everybody is going to find it much easier to point at something with a mouse and click. We should break our own market rather than somebody else doing it to us. They lost a lot of money initially and look at where the Macintosh stands now. This is just an example of Steve Jobs who was a visionary beyond his years. Think about it. Without him today, probably we would still be typing commands into our computer and seeing text-generated responses and not seeing the graphics and the programs and the videos that, that we can. We would be in a whole other place if it were not for him. The next ingredient is don't fake it. He says Wall Street analysts love a company that generates predictable increases in earning. Not just increases, but predictable increases. So he says here the problem is that economy, technology and competition are not really predictable. So to generate predictable earnings, a company must engage in smoothing and manipulating accounting elements normally accruals to compensate for fluctuations in earnings. The funniest sentence that is said in investments is XYZ company miss their earnings. A bunch of people sat together, the bunch of people called analysts. They decided that the firm should be earning this much money in these three months, which we call a quarter in financial terms. After their decision that this company should be earning this much money, the company was unable to meet their expectations. The company does not miss earnings. The analyst missed the earning estimates of the company. And, you know, right now, unanimously, the market is just going crazy. Why should the company be living up to some analyst expectations? And when the companies get deeper into it, what starts happening is, I earned $5 this time, but the analysts expect me to earn 7 So I'm going to show I only earned $2 this time. So that the next time when I earn $5, I'll just put these two dollars in the next balance sheet. And this is called manipulating your accounting statements where you start faking it. This is the exact faking of the earnings, so-called. 
So essentially, the analysts to cover up their own mistake, blame it on the company. Pretty much. And, you know, they, they like to say, oh, consistent earnings. A company has a lot of moving parts to it and moving seasonalities to it. And analysts should start building that into it. And, you know, people assume analysts to be these gods which sit there and know everything. Analysts are just as clueless as how companies work, as the companies might be clueless as to what is going to happen in the next six months, or as the CEOs of the companies are clueless about their revenue estimates, which sometimes exceed the market size, as we talked about earlier. Come to think about it, the government in its budget is not able to estimate how much it's going to spend or how much it's going to earn in a given year when it knows, okay, these are the taxes we are charging, these are the places where we're getting our money. And it's not varying too much in the span of 12 months. But they get it wrong. So imagine a company whose user base is changing, whose number of subscribers is changing, where they're getting their money from is changing, where they have to put their money, like what they have to spend money on is changing because, you know, prices are changing all over the globe. How is something which is that unpredictable, that volatile, that subject to external factors, how is that going to be accurate? I think we have covered the essence of the book fairly well. But the essence of the book is practically just part one of the book that we have gone through. So we really recommend that you go on and study the entire book because, you know, you could literally have a full class on this, on just this book in a college situation. Oh yeah, definitely. The number of examples that he provides, the way he frames some of these examples and the way he shows you his findings through these examples is amazing. I think what it helped me a lot just going through the entire book. And if we start going through the entire book, as Akhil said, we'd be sitting here for a couple of months. So one last thing that I would like to cover that he did is in the last chapter, it's called the strategy foundry. And he talks about the tools to come up with these strategies and the tools to come up with what the crux of the situation is or what the crux of your company is, which is a challenge-based approach as we have been stating throughout the podcast. And a major thing that I want to cover is it is not just the belief of the CEO. It is not just the belief of a single leader. In a company, there might be several different challenges in several different people's minds. And there might be different ratings for the criticality of each challenge. So he recommends that the process of finding a strategy and finding the crux of that strategy is to be done with 8 to 10 people. And 8 to 10 people should be going through the process of the strategy foundry, which you will find in the book. I really suggest you buy the book and keep a copy to yourself so that you can go through it over and over again and maybe implement it to your life, to your teams, at your job, or to your businesses. You have to see this book not just in the form of, oh, I have a company, so this is the strategy I'm going to implement. But it's for everything. The way we look at strategy and the way Rumert has defined strategy is so different. I think this whole thing of having this dynamic aspect to strategy has really stuck out to me. I think it's already made a difference in the way I'm thinking about strategy. So definitely go out, buy the book, read the book, talk to us about the book. Tell us if we missed something. Tell us what you agreed with, what you disagreed with. Come, let's talk about strategy. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you found our conversations and discussions to be thought-provoking and insightful. We look forward to having you with us again. Do make sure to subscribe to our content on YouTube and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again.